Welcome to episode 281 of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. I'm a retired agent on a mission to show you who the FBI is and what the FBI does through my books, my blog, and my podcast case reviews with former colleagues. Today, we get to speak to retired agent Deborah Law Pravat, who served in the FBI for 20 years. In this episode, she explains the difference between oligarchs and kleptocrats, breaks down the indictment of former FBI special agent in charge, Charles McGonagall, and reviews the Nigeria OPL 245 oil-filled bribery case. The investigation involves two major oil companies charged with paying government officials to license the natural oil resources originally gifted by former Nigerian military ruler Sani Abache to his son and to the country's oil minister. Deborah spent most of her career working forfeiture matters and international corruption investigations. She was appointed as a supervisor in the International Corruption Unit at FBI headquarters, focusing on investigating greed that fuels war crimes and atrocities. Deborah La Pravat is the co-host of A Nation for Thieves, a podcast that dwells into how she recovered over $1 billion of dirty money and helped create the FBI's first kleptocracy unit, exposing the world's most corrupt kleptocrats. You can listen to A Nation of Thieves wherever you get your podcast. Before we get to the case review, don't forget I still owe you another episode for February. So next week, look out for part one of a case review on the hunt for FBI top 10 fugitive Whitey Bolger. I also want to let you know how much I loved my recent trip to New Zealand and Australia. I especially want to give a shout out to longtime listeners to FBI Retired Case File Review and my favorite New Zealanders, Shona and Simon Garwood, who met up with me and my husband in Napier, New Zealand, and took us on a five-star tour of the area and gave us some wonderful mementos of our visit to their beautiful country. Thank you, Shona and Simon. I'll share more of my trip along with a review of the Hulu Chippendale series in my March email to Reader Team members. In your podcast app's description of this episode, there's a link to the show notes, as well as links to where you can join my Reader Team, buy me a cup of coffee, and learn more about me and my books. Thank you for your support. Now here's the show. I want to welcome my guest, Deborah LaPravat. Hey, Deborah, how are you doing? Jerry, I'm fine. Thank you. Well, this is fantastic. Actually, this is your second time on the show. You were on the show for episode 151 when we also talked about kleptocracy and your time working as a member of the evidence response team. Because you have a new podcast out, A Nation for Thieves, I thought that we would revisit the topic again. Well, I'm so happy to be back. And I actually have to thank you because someone heard me on your podcast a few years ago. And that's what was the motivation behind my podcast. 
Oh, fantastic. I've heard that happening a lot for people who have been on this podcast getting not just a podcast of their own, but also a few of them getting some documentaries. That's fantastic to know that I've helped my fellow colleagues in that aspect because we want to get the stories out. We want the public to know, as I always say, who the FBI is and what the FBI does. You've interviewed some of my classmates from the class of 96.4. Jerry Clark and several others have had the extreme pleasure of being on your podcast, and I've enjoyed listening. All right. So again, we're going to talk a little deeper, not as deep as people can get if they listen to your podcast, but we'll go a little deeper, hopefully to get them excited and interested. So as soon as they click off of listening to this episode with you, they're going to go search out your new podcast, A Nation for Thieves, and follow and listen to all of your episodes. And I think there's eight, isn't it? There's seven, and this is our first season. It's been very exciting. Before we actually begin this case review, I want to remind people what it was that you did in the FBI, because your position was unique. I lucked out. It's the perfect storm. Every once in a while in the FBI, I think it happens more often than people realize, but you get to a squad where you just absolutely, it's a perfect fit. You love what you do. I was on a terrorism special ops squad that was newly formed. I did a lot of surveillance for two years on possible terrorism suspects. And after two years, I said, you know, I'd like to try something else. And I got to a squad at Washington Field Office that did money laundering and asset recovery. And I loved it. Why? Because why do people commit crimes? They do it for the money. It's all about the money. With a few exceptions, murder and one or two others, they're all done for profit. So my job was to go after the people who took the money, find it, and try to recover it. And in most of my cases, there's a victim. The money that I was able to recover to pull back from the loot, the stuff people buy, the Mercedes, the Rolex, the jewelry, if I could recover that money, any of the money that I recover would go back to the victims. There was a point at which I had 63 open cases. So my file reviews were rather lengthy. They weren't all front burner. I'll you know, admit that. And these cases took three, five, seven, 10 years to investigate. But by working one thing for 15 years of my career, the majority of that time, you become an expert in one aspect of corruption. One thing I could do is I could trace money. There's a paper trail. And around the world, I ultimately seized more than a billion dollars from foreign corrupt leaders while I was with the FBI. I just absolutely loved it. And I worked kleptocracy before it was called kleptocracy, when it was just called international corruption. Now, thank goodness, kleptocracy is a word that is recognized by more and more people. It really is a niche investigation because you're going after world leaders, prime ministers, presidents, their families, their mistresses, people who loot, just rob their countries blind. I could not have found a better fit for me within the FBI. We actually recorded this episode several weeks ago before we learned that a retired FBI official had been indicted for working with a sanctioned Russian oligarch. And because we were talking in this episode about kleptocracy, and they're so related, kleptocracy and oligarchy. I thought I needed to have you come back and record something about this news event 
even though I usually don't do current news, but it's just so related. I thought as people were listening to your case review on kleptocracy, they were going to be thinking about this case. So before we get into the case review about the kleptocrat that you investigated, I thought we would talk a little bit about this particular case as an insert to our original interview and case review. Explain to us the difference between a kleptocrat and an oligarch. Yeah, a kleptocrat and an oligarch. And, and there is a difference because an oligarch is not a government employee. It is a wealthy businessman who has so much money, power, and influence, they can direct corrupt officials, right? They can severely impact because they have so much money and influence, they can cause actions to be taken by a government that are not in the best interest of the government, but in the best interest of those greedy individuals who are profiting. And Desperaska was the Russian oligarch that former SAC McGonagall was working with and for. Yeah, so a kleptocrat is a corrupt government official who puts their own personal profit and power above the good of their people, where Russian oligarchs, Ukrainian oligarchs, other oligarchs are people who have probably profited from bribery, kickbacks, extortion, and other schemes, become multimillionaire to billionaires, and they use that money, power, and influence to facilitate corruption within governments and for personal profit. So the thing that they all have in common is their ability to use government resources to benefit either their own personal needs or their businesses by dealing with the government. Absolutely. And you have to remember, so many of the oligarchs made their money, especially in Russia and Ukraine, when state-owned businesses privatized. And so suddenly, instead of being a state an oil company, you're owned by a oligarch who made all of their money in oil or mining or other formerly state-owned companies that became privatized, often privatized because they were well-connected individuals who kicked money back to people in charge of the government. So th th it, there's really a, a horrible marriage between oligarchs and politicians. And in this case, we happen to have a former SAC who used the knowledge of the inner workings of the U.S. government while he was an FBI SAC to lobby illegally on behalf of a sanctioned person. The Russian oligarch, Oleg Deripaska, was sanctioned by the United States in 2018. And this is at the time when SAC McGonagall retired from the FBI. So the illegal activity happened after when he was no longer with the FBI. However, he used what he learned as an FBI agent to illegally lobby and work on behalf of a sanctioned Russian oligarch. He's also been charged with IEPA violations, which are, you know, the it's it's a long and involved act. But he also is being charged with money laundering because he took money. They they hid the origin of the money that he was being paid to hide that it was coming from Deripaska, who is sanctioned by the U.S., which means he cannot pay or do any business with a U.S. person. And so McGonagall was accepting all this money coming in through shell corporations, through hidden pathways of money flows to show that it wasn't coming from a sanctioned person. And that's why he's also being indicted on accounts of money laundering. This is all just so sad. 
I use this podcast to highlight and showcase the great work of the FBI. But I have had episodes where we've talked about when things have gone wrong and we've had FBI agents who have done terrible things such as Robert Hansen, you know, who, of course, is known as one of the biggest spies in American history. And now we have this example of someone who is alleged, we have to say that, to have been working for a sanctioned foreign businessman. So it's extremely sad that, you know, this has occurred. You know, it really is. But I will tell you, on a positive note, there is some really great work that the FBI, DOJ are doing right now. Because Russia violently invaded Ukraine, the United States formed Klepto Capture. And this was an effort to go after the billionaires, the oligarchs out of Russia who are assisting, fueling, facilitating Russia's invasion into Ukraine. And thus far, the United States, working with our foreign allies, have recovered over $30 billion worth of assets. That's the Russian oligarch yachts and properties and bank accounts from these individuals. And with luck, some of that money or all of that money will be given to Ukraine to help them rebuild when this war is eventually over. It's very interesting because right now, Russia is decimating its financial situation by continuing the war in Ukraine. And it's kind of now just, I think, Putin's ego that's keeping him in this war. Thank goodness that allies around the world are coming up and supporting Ukraine. But Ukraine's going to need to rebuild because right now many of its cities are just being decimated off the face of the earth by bombs and other tactics being used by Russia. So klepto capture has been a very good thing. I believe the first several million dollars, I, I don't know if it's 35 million, 30 million, has already been sent back to Ukraine to assist President Zelensky. I just Googled Klepto Capture, and there are several links to articles about it. So I will make sure I put those in the show notes for this episode. So it sounds like, and, and you had mentioned this, the main thing that kleptocrats and oligarchs have in common is greed. It is. And, and, you know, if you look at so many of the problems of the world, you know, obviously I look at foreign corruption, but I look at foreign corruption because of the impact corruption has on its civilian population, right? When money is diverted, look how many countries are just absolutely resource rich, and yet their people live in poverty. And they do that because of corruption. And a handful of people in Eastern Europe countries, we call them oligarchs, but in other parts of the world, they're just corrupt businessmen. <laughs> but, you know, there are a number of oligarchs that are just billionaires and they made their money usually through corrupt dealings. And yeah, greed is the underlying factor in all of these, both kleptocrats who use their resources for self-enrichment and those around the world, the rich businessmen who facilitate, enhance, and participate in the looting of state assets. All right. So the definition for a kleptocrat is a ruler who uses political power to steal his country's resources. So my question to you is, is Putin? A kleptocrat? Well, yeah, he's a kleptocrat because it's not just the resources, although Russia is oil rich. And yes, I'm sure. Well, first of all, Putin is one of the richest men in the world. I mean, I think $20 billion they or so they ass assess his wealth at. He didn't make that from uh, being a government official. 
And so, yes, he is definitely a kleptocrat because it's not just the looting the resources, it's looting assets, state assets. That could be bank accounts. It could be making sure that you're awarding contracts to people who are giving you a bribe or a kickback. And that could be construction contracts. It could be road contracts. So the broader definition of a kleptocrat is someone who really just puts greed and their own personal enrichment over the well-being of their populace. And unfortunately, so often that happens in resource rich countries, oil, gold, teak, the money happens to come from resources quite often. So let's get started on that case review. The interesting thing about this particular case review is that we usually talk about something that you worked while you were an FBI agent. And even though as we begin this conversation, listeners will hear us talk about present day, this was a case that you started when you were an agent, but it's continued even after your retirement. Oh, you know, it's funny, but not funny that my cases never go away. I retired in December of 2015. So it was exactly seven years ago this week. And I have testified four times since I retired, twice for the government of Bangladesh, this time for Italy. I am still scheduled to testify again for the government of Bangladesh and for the government of Nigeria in this case. So my cases don't go away. I testify for free because I never want to be a paid witness. I feel that it would taint my testimony. I volunteer my time on this investigation. And these cases involve such large sums of money that they are very complex. They take a long time. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Where do we want to start? I thought we would dig deeper in a particular story, because as you know, that's what I like to do here on FBI Retired Case File Review, is to concentrate on a case and review it from the beginning until the end, at least the end as we know it at this point. What case did you decide that we would talk about today? We're going to talk about the case of Nigerian oil block. It's called OPL 245. And it's actually an extension of the Sani Abacha case that I talked about when I was on your show last time. Okay, fantastic. I guess we shouldn't assume that everybody knows what kleptocracy is. So I guess we should start there and then dive right into the OPL 245 case. The Reader's Digest version of kleptocracy is the investigation of a kleptocratic regime, which is a regime run by people who put their own self-interest and greed over the well-being of their people. So there are no shortage of foreign corrupt leaders who loot state coffers, steal all the money, divert money from social programs into their pockets. South Sudan, Equatorial Guinea, Venezuela, many kleptocratic regimes. So it's really going after the worst of the worst leaders who loot their own countries. And is that what happened with OPL 245? And where did that title come from anyway? 
that's how they name oil blocks. So this is an offshore oil block that has billions of dollars worth of fuel under the ocean because it's a deep sea oil reservoir. It was literally gifted to Sadi Abacha's son and the former minister of petroleum of Nigeria back in 1998, both of whom used aliases to hide their ownership interest in that oil block. And it's still being investigated today. How do you gift an oil well? Well, it's really interesting. When we spoke last time, I mentioned Sonny Abacha. Sonny Abacha was the president of Nigeria for about four or five years. He died in office June of 1998. While in office, he stole, looted, extorted, and accepted bribes totaling about $5 billion. So I was assigned one of the cases to go after some of his stolen loot. And I actually ended up seizing $630 million, which at the time was the largest FBI seizure related to that. But while he was in office, he would gift the natural resources of Nigeria to his mistress, to his son, to friends. There was an oil reservoir that needed to be put into an oil field. I mean, you know, all the infrastructure to get the oil out. And he gifted it, OPL 245, to his son, Mohamed Abacha, Daniel Atete, who was the then Minister of Petroleum, and an ambassador. The three of them owned a company called Malibu Oil, and that oil block was gifted to them for $20 million. They were supposed to pay $20 million for it. They actually only paid $2 million. That's the start of the saga, the gifting of the oil block. This is fascinating because to me, when I think about this, how can you gift a nation, a country's resources? And once the public finds out about it, then why don't you, why can't you just take it back? Well, actually, at one point it was. So what was really interesting is President Abacha gifts this to Malibu Oil, and months later, he dies in office. So Daniel Atete, who was the Minister of Petroleum, he no longer needed Mohamed Abacha, President Abacha's son, as a business partner. So he literally erased him from the paperwork, and now he owned the oil block. The next president that came in, President Obasanjo, didn't like Daniel Atete, and more or less, he took the oil block back. But then at some point, maybe he needed something from Daniel Atete. So by 2006, he gave it back to Daniel Atete. But it makes no money until somebody comes in and puts in an oil rig and all the infrastructure to get that oil out from under the ocean. Eventually, the oil block was sold to Shell. And over the next few years, Shell had put a lot of like $250 million into getting all of that infrastructure into place. That's when Obasanjo took it away from Shell and gave it back to Atete. So it was going back and forth. But the bottom line was, at the end of the day, it made no money for Daniel Atete till another company was getting the oil out of the ground. In 2011, he was selling it to the Italian oil company, ENI and Shell, and the sale price was $1.3 billion. Well, now Mohamed Abacha, President Abacha's son, comes back and goes, excuse me, hello, I own 50% of that. So they couldn't sell it because there was a legal court action going on over the ownership of the oil block. A lot of greedy people within the government of Nigeria stepped in took the oil block and said the government of Nigeria owns it and they sold it to ENI and Shell. But what we found out is that a lot of bribes were paid. 
They believe that the Minister of Petroleum, the former Attorney General, and the President were all profiting from this $1.3 billion sale. And that's where I got called. (laughs) It still is just mind-boggling because all of this seems to be going on within the public view that the citizens of Nigeria can see all of this passing back and forth and this infighting about this natural resource that belongs to Nigeria. So I still don't understand how all of this goes on. It couldn't go on like that here, I would hope, in the United States. Yes, I I would hope that's the case. But you know, when you have people in Nigeria at the time profiting from this, it looked like the government of Nigeria just took back their own asset. But that really was not the case. They only took it back so that it could be sold. They set up a bank account in the name of the federal government of Nigeria at J.P. Morgan Chase Bank in London. And ENI, the Italian oil company, transferred $1.1 billion into that bank account. And immediately, the whole amount was transferred to a bank account in Lebanon by an Italian. So you're like, well, wait a second. If this is Nigeria's money, why are they transferring the $1.1 billion to this Swiss bank account? And the Swiss bank said, uh, we don't want to be involved. And they sent the money back. So a month later, they tried to send it to this bank account in Lebanon. That bank went, um, no, thank you. And they sent it back. So it was sitting at this bank account in London for a couple months. And then they finally got like 800 million of it transferred to two bank accounts in Nigeria. And that's when Simon Taylor, the head of Global Witness, came to the FBI and DOJ and said, you've got to step in. Look, this money is moving all over the world. It's the proceeds of bribery and kickbacks. I was able to open an investigation with the FBI because a lot of the money came to the United States. I spent the next two years tracing the $800 million that was transferred into the two bank accounts in Nigeria. It bought a $58 million aircraft, which was registered in Oklahoma because that's where the FAA is, right? It was a Bombardier 6000, this huge jet. Here's the funny FBI stories that people don't know, but I put a tracker on that aircraft. I would get a phone call every time it took off and landed. My phone would ring at two in the morning and I'd get, Agent LaPravat, this is 599-073. We have a confirmation your aircraft has landed in Gibraltar. And I'm like, okay, thank you. (laughs) I'd write it down. I'd go back to bed. And what I was trying to get is when that aircraft might land in some place that would enforce a seizure warrant from the United States. Because I felt that the $54 million aircraft was the proceeds of bribery kickbacks. I was investigating the flow of money into the United States. All of this was U.S. dollars, by the way, which gave us venue besides the fact that money was coming into the United States. They bought an armored car in Texas that sat there for years because it was illegal to ship an armored car to Nigeria. I did these interviews. I did the tracing of this money. And finally, in 2017, the Italian prosecutors were on the equivalent of an electronic intercept when they picked up somebody saying, well, you know, we have to pay Fortunato. And Fortunato was their code name for Good Luck Jonathan, the president of Nigeria. So they opened an investigation in Italy saying that bribes were paid and kickbacks to officials in Italy at ENI, the oil company, to buy the oil block and that they knew that bribes were being paid in Nigeria to facilitate the sale of this. In 2018, I was asked to testify in Milan 
And I laugh. I spoke to the prosecutor, Fabio de Pasquale, the prosecutor in Italy. I said, Fabio, are you flying me to Milan? He's like, Deborah, we have no money. Maybe you'll testify by video. And so, yes, unfortunately, I testified by video from Washington, D.C. into the trial in Milan. The trial lasted two years. The law enforcement in the Netherlands raided the offices of Shell because Shell and E&I owned this oil block. And they got all these emails that showed they knew where the money was going and who was profiting from a lot of the money from the sale of this oil block. The question that I'm thinking, and I think other listeners are, who is profiting? You talked about the current, at the time, president of Nigeria, but it sounds like with all these planes and armored cars and things being purchased, that there are a lot of people who are being paid bribes for this transaction, this purchase of this oil block by these different companies such as Shell. And you said it is an Italian company? The Italian oil company, ENI, the largest Italian oil company. Shell had already put $250 million or more into developing this oil field. So Shell and ENI went in together. And Shell, like, well, we've already put this money into it. So ENI transferred the $1.1 billion into the bank account at JP Morgan in London. And immediately the entire amount was transferred out of London to an account in Switzerland. Right there, you're like, I'm sorry, if this is Nigeria's money, why is it going to the bank account of an Italian? And as I said, it kept being sent back. So yes, the premise was that officials at ENI were getting a payday and benefiting, but also that several people, the Minister of Petroleum, the former Attorney General of Nigeria, and the President of Nigeria were all profiting on the Nigerian side, which is why the government of Nigeria stepped in and took control and ownership of the oil block just for the purposes of being able to sell it. And then, of course, Daniel Atete is the one who bought the $54 million aircraft, the former Minister of Petroleum. A lot of people in Nigeria appeared to be profiting from the sale of this national asset. Tell me more about this Daniel Atete. Is that his name? Yeah, he was the Minister of Petroleum at the time. And he's really an interesting character because he's been found guilty. I think in France, they charged him with money laundering years ago and he was found guilty. So he is a convicted felon in France for money laundering. He had already been found guilty at the time that some of this was going on. He's still free and clear today. France never got him back to serve time there. He just won't go back to France. And he's never been charged or prosecuted in Nigeria because, of course, look, everybody who was profiting from the sale of this oil block included, apparently, the Minister of Petroleum, the Attorney General who would be charging him. Mohamed Adoke was the attorney general under Good Luck Jonathan while I was investigating this oil block. And I could not even ask for evidence out of Nigeria at that time because my request for evidence would have gone to him. So I had to wait till he was out of office until President Buhari took office and replaced Good Luck Jonathan before I could ask for evidence and expect to get legitimate evidence out of Nigeria related to this oil block. This sounds very complicated when it comes to tracing these international funds. What is the ability and the role of the United States in fighting this type of international corruption? Why are we in the fight? 
Well, first of all, we're signers on UNCAC, the UN Convention Against Corruption. So yes, we do help our foreign partners. I had already opened a case on trying to recover President Abacha's stolen loot. We were successful in recovering a large sum of that. This was just DOJ and FBI agreed that since a lot of the money from OPL 245 came into the U.S. financial system, that we would open an investigation. It turned out to be very fortuitous because my tracing was part of the evidence used in the case brought in Italy. What are the roles of these corporations when it comes to something like this? I mean, did Shell and E&I admit to paying bribes and what they were doing? No, and that's what brings this case up to today. In 2017, E&I was charged with facilitating bribes and other allegations in Italy. Just this year, they were acquitted by the Italian court. There are several people who feel very strongly that bribes were paid in Italy to get that acquittal. What's interesting is the use of lawfare. I don't know how many of your listeners are familiar with that. Lawfare is when the law is used against the good guys. We have two examples of lawfare. Fabio de Pasquale, the prosecutor, after the acquittal, he and his assistant prosecutor have been charged falsely, we believe, with withholding evidence But what that did is it removed them from the appeal process. It kept them from bringing an appeal. So a new judge was brought in and she just dismissed the case. She's like, I don't even know why we're investigating this. This is a waste of the government's money. So now an appeal is not going to be brought for that acquittal in Italy. And so many people are up in arms. My Nigerian colleague, Lanre Suraju, He took the evidence that was presented in the court in Milan and made it public in Nigeria. He was falsely charged with providing fake documents. He's like, fake documents? What do you mean fake documents? This was the evidence presented in court in Italy. Here are two countries, Italy and Nigeria, that are using the law to squash anti-corruption activists. Not only that, four months ago, Lanre woke up with a shotgun to his head. Five armed gunmen broke into his home in Nigeria, threatened him, his wife, his two children, and his sister-in-law were in the house at the time. They beat him up. He got sent to the emergency room, but thank goodness they didn't kill him. Lanre has successfully been taken out of Nigeria. He's here in the United States for his own safety with his family. You're talking an example of where the bad guys are using the law to squash those fighting for justice both in Italy and in Nigeria. Matter of fact, there was so much uproar about the armed gunman threatening Lanre that the case against him was dropped in Nigeria. Well, thank goodness for that. I think that is probably one of the most disturbing things about this whole international corruption is when somebody tries to stop it, to bring awareness about it, then they're attacked. Have there been situations in this particular case where anyone was actually killed or stopped in a more violent way? Not that I'm aware of. I think our huge concern is that if there is corruption within the judiciary in either Italy or Nigeria, then how will justice ever prevail? Right now, myself and a group of other anti-corruption activists from Global Witness, Lanre Sarajou and others 
are all fighting to have DOJ reopen the FBI investigation into OPL 245. Maybe having the squad that works foreign corrupt practices open an investigation. The FBI closed their case when Italy brought their case because there was no need to prosecute from both points. But since we feel that possible bribes were paid in Italy to get the acquittal and that justice will not see the light of day in this case there, we have asked DOJ to reopen their investigation. What about Shell? You know, it's interesting, but Shell is part of the EU. I mean, because they're based out of Amsterdam in the Netherlands. Since Italy is part of the EU, the authorities in Amsterdam will not bring a case because both being members of the EU, they think it would be double jeopardy. So that's why we think the only place E&I and Shell will face justice is if DOJ brings a case. Is there a statute of limitations? Is there time ticking to get this indicted and charged by DOJ? There is a statute of limitations, but the good news is we have found numerous transactions that have occurred within the last three to five years, which keeps the statute relevant and timely. There is sufficient time within the statute to bring a case. So I take it that's where you stand right now with OPL 245, just waiting to see what the next step will be. Will DOJ pick up the next level and go after these people? What needs to be done for them to make that decision? What's the next step? I think a thorough briefing of the squad that works Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, because Shell is on the New York Stock Exchange. That gives us venue for FCPA violations. And the Money Laundering Asset Recovery Unit at DOJ, we would very much like them to open a civil forfeiture investigation to go after the money from OPL 245. We were able a few weeks ago to share a great deal of this information with DOJ. I think we'll be pushing now for another briefing to show DOJ the most recent transactions that extend the statute of limitations on this case. That's where we're at now. We're pushing, hopefully, to have DOJ take some action. Where is that money now? It's amazing that there's still any actual proceeds left that they haven't spent it on more planes and more armored cars and houses, et cetera. Well, it's interesting. It was in 2020, that $54 million aircraft was seized when it landed in Canada. I'd be interested to see where it's sitting now. Has it already been sold? Because that's going two and a half years ago. Even used, it's probably a $30 million aircraft. Granted, a lot of the money will not be able to be recovered. Any of it would be good. But I think it would also be good, I think if they're found to be guilty, E&I and the government of Nigeria could probably take the oil block back. And then they could sell it legitimately to a third party. And the government of Nigeria could profit from the oil block and not have just Italy and Shell profit from that oil block. That definitely makes sense because it is a resource of Nigeria. That's what makes this so fascinating, these cases. I worked economic crime throughout my career, so I know about money laundering. It was charged in some of my cases, but not on a scale like this. This is an unbelievable scale. And you're talking, again, not millions, but billions of dollars. 
It's interesting. I tell people all the time, when someone takes one to $5 billion, it is difficult to spend unless you're buying like mega yachts. And even then, then you have an item that I can seize. When someone steals $10 million, they can blow that on gambling, cocaine, surgery. One of my subjects bought breast implants. And I'm like, yes, you can keep those. I'm not seizing those. It's easy to blow through a million dollars or a couple million dollars. But when people take a billion dollars, they buy large, seizable assets. They buy gold, they buy diamonds, they buy jewelry, they buy villas. Matter of fact, there was a really interesting investigation done two years ago, and they identified, gosh, 800 properties in Dubai belonging to Nigerian officials valued at like $400 million. One of those is the former attorney general, Mohamed Adoke. Maybe there is a chance that some of that money bought properties in Dubai. Some of them bought properties elsewhere. Not all of it will be able to be recovered, but it would do two things. One, it would bring some justice to the government of Nigeria that they could hopefully get back their oil block. And it would bring justice to officials in other countries who apparently pay bribes to get that oil block. Like I said, this is fascinating. And I guess that's why you decided to produce and co-host a podcast about this topic. Let's talk a little bit about your brand new podcast, A Nation for Thieves. Yeah, I was really excited. Two and a half years ago when I was on your podcast, weeks later, I got a message, I think through LinkedIn, from a producer out in LA, a mutual friend of ours now, Justin Shankaro. And he's like, I listened to you on Jerry Williams' podcast. And he goes, I never heard of kleptocracy before. I'd love to know more. And we started talking. And over the last two and a half years, we tried to figure out, well, what can we do with this? Can we develop something for Netflix? They were like, you know, let's start with a podcast. Let's educate people on kleptocracy and the world of going after the worst of the worst. We took five or six of my bigger cases where I went after hundreds of millions to billions of dollars from foreign corrupt leaders. So we talked about President Abach out of Nigeria, Pavel Lazarenko out of Ukraine. We had wonderful guests, but I'll tell you, so topical. We spoke to Daria, who fights corruption in Ukraine. And three weeks later, after we spoke to her, Russia invaded Ukraine. So we called her back because she had to flee to Poland to protect herself and her family. She believes she is on Putin's kill list because she is always fighting corruption in Ukraine and a lot of the Russian money coming into Ukraine. And then we interviewed Lanre Siraju out of Nigeria. And a few weeks after we interviewed Lanre, the five armed gunmen broke into his house and threatened and beat him up. We got Lanre not only out of Nigeria, but we were able to re-interview him so he could share what happened to him when those armed gunmen entered his home. I hope people understand. And when they listen to the show, I hope they enjoy it. But it's like, this is the shady world of high-level political corruption. I always say drug dealers don't sell drugs because they love selling drugs. They sell drugs because it affords a lifestyle they couldn't afford, right? The cars, the money, the women, the boats, the yachts. Well, the same thing holds true for corrupt leaders. Look at the president of Equatorial Guinea. His son, millions of dollars in mansions and vehicles were seized from him in France. I seized one of his properties in California. There's just billions of dollars moving all around the globe internationally related to corrupt officials. 
A Nation for Thieves gives us an opportunity to share information on four or five of my larger cases. And for those who want to take a listen to A Nation for Thieves, I will have a link in the episode show note for you to visit the show and listen. And you said that this is season one. I take it you're going to have a season two. What will you cover in that? Well, you know, we certainly like to, and there's no shortage of cases that we could talk about. 15 years working this one thing. We did talk about my largest cases this season. And so we could certainly go on to season two. Or what we're hoping is that somebody sees this and says, you know what? This would be a good, another good FBI show. Like you look at CSI, right? There's CSI Miami, there's CSI New York. Well, there are FBI shows like Quantico. There are FBI shows like FBI International, but there's never been an FBI show that dealt with kleptocracy, how the FBI goes after corruption around the world and traces the money from foreign corrupt leaders and our role in fighting corruption under the UN Convention Against Corruption. Because so many countries, after there's been a regime change, they reach out to all their foreign partners, including the United States, and say, look, the last regime robbed us blind. Could you help us recover that money? That's what kleptocracy is all about, going after the corrupt foreign leaders and trying to recover the money that was looted by them and returning it to those countries. Does that money have to have gone through the U.S. banking system for the FBI or DOJ to become involved in that type of case? Well, there has to be some venue. What's really interesting is almost always in these countries, the money moves in U.S. dollars. I currently work South Sudan, and no one wants South Sudanese pounds outside of South Sudan. When you're trying to get millions or billions of dollars out of a country into what someone considers a safe haven, 90% of the time it moves in U.S. dollars, therefore hitting U.S. financial institutions, thus giving us venue. But we also have venue when a company that's on the New York Stock Exchange, like Siemens back in the day, admitted to paying bribes. When I seized money out of Bangladesh that was paid by Siemens, I had venue because Siemens wanted to be on the New York Stock Exchange, but the money moved in US dollars as well. A lot of times they'll use an AOL email or a Google email. And so it's very likely that those emails exist on a US server and were facilitated through the US. There's so many different ways the US could have venue. But yes, for me, going after the money, it really helps that the money leaves in US dollars and could hit like three to five financial institutions within one or two transactions. I know we covered this the last time, but I thought I would ask you again to tell us why and when you joined the FBI. Oh, my gosh. In a galaxy far, far away. (laughs) So, oh, my EOD, my entry onto duty date. It was November 11, 1295. I was the fitness director for the Norfolk Naval Base. So when people are applying for the FBI, we hire people from diverse backgrounds. My undergraduate degree was in exercise physiology. I was a jock. I had been on a track scholarship to college. I was the fitness director of the Norfolk Naval Base. And one day I walked into one of my gyms and I said, you know, there must be somewhere I can go to work every day and be surrounded by excellence. And that day I said, I want to be an FBI agent. So it was the 90s. I went to the library and I walk in. I'm like, where's the card catalog? (laughs) And the girl points to a laptop. I'm like, oh, yes, it's 1995. So I checked out every book, Kessler's, Inside the FBI. The FBI. But why? But why FBI? 
they're the best. Uh, I know, but had you met an agent? Had you had any interaction with agents and your job at the Navy base? No, I had not. My dad was a police officer when I was a child, around the time I was born. He was a Alexandria Park police officer in Virginia. I associated the FBI with excellence. So when I decided to want to be in law enforcement, the FBI was obviously my first choice. I was so happy. I went through, as you did, right? The testing, the interviews, the retesting. I remember getting, in October, I got the letter that said, congratulations, you've been accepted into the FBI. Please show up at Quantico on 11-12-1995. I spent the next 16 weeks with the FBI at Quantico in training. Loved it. Loved the people that I met there. And I'm still friends, obviously, with so many of my classmates 27 years later. I'll tell you, though, it was difficult. I mentioned this in the podcast. Two weeks before graduation, I realized my husband was not coming to my graduation. I mean, like he hadn't asked, like, how do I get on base? Where do I park? What time do I need to be there? And I'm like, oh, my God, you're not coming. I wanted my six-year-old daughter there. So I called my mom and my dad and I said, Mark's not coming. Could you please pick up my daughter on the way? My mom, my dad, my daughter, my best friend, Donna Minacci and her husband, that's who attended my graduation from the FBI Academy. Two weeks later, when I arrived in Detroit, I was served with divorce papers my first day with the FBI. But I'm not alone. There were 15 women in my class at Quantico. Three of us were married, and I believe all three of us were divorced within about a year after graduation. Luckily, I think that was already 27 years ago, and that times change. And that more men are willing to follow their wives when they get relocated. My first office was Detroit, Michigan. My husband didn't want to move, even though he had said he would. It was a really tough for two years. And where were you living? Were you down in the Norfolk area? Yeah, Uh, I was in Chesapeake, Virginia. And the first time they said, you're going to Detroit, Michigan, they made their hand like a mitten. And I'm like, why? They're like, yeah, Michigan looks like a mitten. I'm like, oh, well, yes, it does. I was uh, actually north of the border with Windsor, Canada. So I was like, oh my goodness, I'm north of Canada. But you know what? I met phenomenal people, just phenomenal people when I got to Detroit. I have to say, I love the FBI. I am very disturbed by some of the things that are going on in the FBI now. But the FBI I worked for was a remarkable place to work and absolutely loved my time with the FBI. I think out of that whole conversation, people were very much interested in the background and the sacrifices that you had to make in order to join. But I think the most surprising thing was that you don't have a financial background. So here's somebody who became an expert and has now an expertise even after retiring from the FBI and money laundering and international corruption and following finances. And you were an exercise science major. What's that about? Well, it's funny because I did go back. I got a master's degree, but I got my master's degree in forensic science because I was on the FBI's evidence response team. But the bottom line is we hope that the FBI hired us because we were smart women. And you know what? You can follow a paper trail. I think my strongest assets were tenacity. It's like, I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to stay on this case. Anyone who's worked the international cases knows it takes, from the time I asked for records, it could be a year before I get them out of Switzerland, out of Antigua, out of other foreign jurisdictions. You just have to not leave. You have to work one thing and become really good at it. 
yes, I did not come from a financial background, but you learned. The FBI sent me to complex financial manipulation training and other classes on investigating white collar crime as well as money laundering. They did teach this old dog new tricks. And of course, the concern now is you've got all this expertise and all of this knowledge in addition to volunteering to testify at different international corruption trials. What are you doing with that knowledge? Well, I have to say, I got one of the best retirement jobs I ever could have hoped for. Right when I was getting ready to retire, I got a phone call and I got hired by actor George Clooney and John Pendergast. They are co-founders of a group called The Century. What I always wanted to do is just keep being an investigator. So for the last seven years, I have been investigating greed that facilitates war crimes, atrocities, and conflict in Central Africa. My focus has been on South Sudan, but the Century investigates corruption in South Sudan, Sudan, DRC, Congo, Central African Republic, and we're branching into Libya, Azerbaijan, Myanmar, and Zimbabwe. I work Central Africa. For the last seven years, I've traveled to Juba, South Sudan, Kampala, Uganda. I went to Australia to trace money flows of bad money from South Sudan going to Australia. I basically do the same investigations I did for the FBI, but now for the century. How does the century tie in with prosecutors such as DOJ or international prosecutors? Because once you get the money, there has to be some type of legal action, I take it, in order to get it back. Well, yeah. So like any investigator for an NGO or for civil society, what we can do is we can expose it. We can make it very public. And the evidence that we collect, we can share with DOJ, Treasury, and the FBI. But not only do we share the information that we collect with the United States, but with the UK, the EU, the African Union, the European Union, we will share our evidence with anyone who has venue. And we had a lot of success. We found out that a South Sudanese general had purchased a beautiful mansion in Melbourne, Australia for $1.5 million cash. So myself and the other investigators at the Century, we did an investigation. Without my access to FBI stuff, which I don't have anymore, you'd be surprised what you can find out. So because it was a $1.5 million property, I found the video from the realtor online. So I had a virtual tour of the entire house. I could see from land records in Australia that it was bought for $1.5 million cash. There was no lien against the property. It was bought in the name of James Hothmai's 22-year-old son, Nagath Mai. I'm like, hmm, he runs a business. So I checked import-export records. He runs a business that does no business. There were no import or export records. The address for his company was the house. I flew to Australia and I started investigating and I talked to South Sudanese diaspora, the people who now live in Australia from South Sudan. Next thing I know, they're like, oh, do you want to meet him? Do you want to meet General Hathmai? I'm like, okay. I ended up having tea in the living room of that house with General Hathmai and his wife. I was able to look at the cars in the driveway, get the license plates. And while I was in Australia, I met with the Australian Federal Police and I said, look, I'm former FBI, but now I work for the Century. Here is the information that we have regarding the purchase of this property. And what I think steamed Australia is that General Hothmai's family had been living off government assistance for eight years in Australia. And then he buys a $1.5 million house for cash. 
So they open an investigation, which of course I, you know, you hope, but you don't always know because they don't tell you. But months later, I got a phone call from the Australian Federal Police and they're like, Debbie, do you have anything on these five companies? And we're like, yes, we do. Here you go. And a year later, I got a phone call and said, just wanted to let you know, we seized General Hothmai's $1.5 million house and his daughter's $35,000 Audi because they were able to do what I couldn't do. They could trace the money and see where it was coming from. And sure enough, I got a copy of the court records out of the court in Australia, and I found the money that he was being paid was coming from individuals whose companies in South Sudan had gotten contracts for the military under him. There is at least probable cause to believe that the money that purchased that house was derived from kickbacks. Why would he invite you in for tea? Well, you have to remember, this was before anybody knew what I was there doing. I mean, he knew I was looking at corruption. But I will tell you, after the Australian seized his house, his wife went on television and said, he fought in the bush for 20 years. He deserves this. That's the philosophy, unfortunately, in South Sudan. Most of the people in power are former generals, and they feel that they fought for independence, and it is their time at the table. It is their turn to eat. And because of that, South Sudan has been dubbed the most corrupt country in the world for the last two years by Transparency International on their perceived corruption index. I mean, when you're the most corrupt country out of 183 countries for two years running, that just shows you how much corruption there is in South Sudan. If it weren't for NGOs like the Century who are there and their only job is to expose that corruption... We hope that the evidence that we collect can be used at some time for an international tribunal, for a corruption court, maybe the International Corruption Court at The Hague. We just keep plugging away out there and collecting evidence and exposing corruption. Excellent. We're at the very end where I like to give my guests the last word. What would you like to say? On a selfish note, I'd say, please listen to A Nation for Thieves. On a more altruistic note, I'd say if you have evidence and information about corruption, share it. Contact the FBI, contact NGOs, the Century, Global Witness, Financial Crimes Network, all these groups that are out there fighting corruption. If you're a realtor and you sold a house in Miami to a rich Venezuelan, call the FBI office in Miami and let them know. There's a lot of ways that the average person, they're in possession of knowledge. Put that knowledge into the hands of somebody who can do something with it. And that's the end of the interview. In your podcast app's description of this episode, there's a direct link to the show notes where you'll find a photo of Deborah Law Pravat, links to articles about oligarchs, crypto capture, OPL 245, and of course, a link to where you can listen to Deborah's new podcast, A Nation for Thieves. I hope you enjoyed the interview and that you'll share it with your friends, family, and associates. You can show me just how much you liked it by buying me a coffee. There's a link in your podcast app's description of this episode, or you can visit jerrywilliams.com and tap on the little coffee cup icon in the bottom right-hand corner of my website. Don't forget to follow FBI Retired Case File Review on your favorite podcast app. Now, this podcast is all about true crime, but if you're also interested in crime fiction, Once a month, via my reader team email, I keep you up to date on the FBI and books, TV, and movies. When you join my reader team, you get access to my FBI reading resource, 
a colorful list of more than 70 books about the FBI written by FBI agents who have been guests on this podcast. There's nonfiction, crime fiction, true crime, and memoirs. You'll also get my FBI reality checklist where I debunk 20 cliches about the FBI and receive news about what I'm up to and about my FBI nonfiction and crime fiction books. I want to thank you for listening to the very end. I hope you come back for another episode of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. Thank you.